Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. That's where we are today, 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to move through a few, a few chapters with selected passages looking at uh, the, the story that's unfolding before us today from 1 Samuel. Here's our key concept for this morning. God will defend His glory. God will defend His glory. Now, while you're finding 1 Samuel chapter 4, last week we noted that Samuel, as a young boy, maybe a young teenager, was, was able to hear directly from God. And what he heard from God in the stillness of that night was that judgment was to come on the family of Eli for Eli's failure to restrain his sons and for his son's evil behavior in the land. And today what we're going to see is that judgment does indeed come. And we're going to note some lasting consequences from bad decisions made without seeking the Lord. So in a sense, we're going to learn from the bad example of Eli's sons this morning. But before we look at the terrible events that come upon the, the children of Israel and in, in these few chapters... I want to start with words from Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet who was active in Israel, prophesying some 400 years after the events that we will learn, learn about today. But here's what he says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now you may ask, why are we starting 400 years ahead of the, the scene that we'll be looking at today? And the reason is because woe to me is how we are supposed to react when we encounter God. Woe to me, I am undone. In other words, I see how small and how frail and how sinful I am compared to the purity and the power and the glory of God. An encounter with the Almighty should humble us. It should put us in our place. Satan, however, wants to diminish God's glory in our eyes. He seeks to have us turn God into our servant as a means towards our end, to get what we want. And in our fallenness, it is easy to slip into that mindset. It is easy to slip into a, a thinking that seeks to manipulate God, to have Him deliver to us the desire of the moment, whatever it is, whether it's wealth or victory or health or advancement. But Eli and his evil sons in this situation have slipped into that mindset. Eli's evil sons have no sense for God's glory, no desire beyond serving themselves. And as, as, as that's unfolding before us, we'll see that the agenda of Satan is thriving in this day. And it all comes together on one terrible day when it becomes very obvious that God is no longer blessing the children of Israel. The Philistines the perennial enemy of Israel, attack. 
Now we're going to break into the story as the armies of Israel are defeated and 4,000 men have died on the battlefield. The rest have fled in retreat and they're regrouping now trying to get a grip on what's going on. Pick up the reading in verse 3 of chapter 4. It says this, When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring this defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord, Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may, go, it may go with us and save us from the hand of the enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now, if you've ever watched the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you've seen an example of the mindset that's unfolding here among the children of Israel in that, in that particular movie. If only the Ark of the Covenant were with us, then we would win in battle. And the battle is against the Philistines, the long-term enemy of Israel. They were enemies of Israel from the period of the judges all the way through the early monarchy in uh, King Saul and King David. They are mentioned 150 times as the enemies of Israel in 1st and 2nd Samuel alone. The Philistines had uh, migrated. They were a people who originally lived up in the Aegean Sea area, Greece, and what we now know as southern Turkey. At a hundred years before these events, they migrated in large numbers, first to Crete and then into uh, the Holy Land, and they settled in the coastal areas, but now they're seeking to expand their territory. And this is the first recorded major battle between Israel and the Philistines. And obviously we see things do not go well for Israel. It is a tragedy. It's a debacle. 4,000 men are dead. And as we would expect, of course, after the retreat, the leaders do some soul searching. They ask some questions. How could this happen? How could this tragedy uh, occur? Where, where did things go so terribly wrong? And the unfortunate thing is they had no good answers because they had no real guidance. Remember, the priests who were influ influential in this time were the evil sons of Eli, who last week we noted had no regard for the Lord. And so when the elders come up with this harebrained scheme to bring the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle in Shiloh and parade it out in the battlefield as some kind of good luck charm, they had no one to give them wise counsel against this. In fact, the indication is that the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, say, well, that's a great idea, and they too come along. See, the expectation is that if only we had the Ark of the Covenant with us, it would guarantee victory. After all, the Ark of the Covenant was with the children of Israel as they marched around Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Obviously, there's something to this. And so they bring the Ark into the field of battle. Let's talk about the Ark. The word Ark means chest or box. Picture something about the size of a horizontal filing cabinet, but this is not any ordinary box. It is the centerpiece symbol of God's covenant with Israel, God's agreement with Israel. 
Inside the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments, the actual uh, tablets of the commandments. Also inside the Ark of the Covenant there was manna, symbolizing God's care for the people. And Aaron's rod, symbolizing the authority that God gave Moses and Aaron to, uh, to lead the people through the wilderness wanderings. I think we have a photo. I want you to see a picture of the Ark. Now, some of you are wondering, is that actually the Ark of the Covenant? No, that is the prop that was used in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. But they did a good job of, of, uh, of uh, replicating what the ark might have looked like. It was covered in pure gold, and on top of the ark there's a covering covered in pure gold called the mercy seat or the place of atonement. And on that cover, two images of cherubim with their wings spread out over the ark. And that was a symbol of, that connected the Ark of the Covenant with God's unique presence in heaven because the understanding was God was also uniquely present there above the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 25, 22, it says, There above the cover between the two cherubim uh, that are over the Ark of the Testimony, I will meet with you and, and give you all my commands for the Israelites. And once a year, on the holy high day of atonement, the, the high priest would approach the ark and inside the holy of holies would sprinkle the blood of sacrifice on that mercy seat as a sin offering first for himself and then for the people. And the blood that rested on the, uh, the cover of the ark of the covenant was a, a cover, if you will, an intervention between the holiness of God and the sin of the people. And the ark sitting in the inner sanctuary was a testament to God's glory and God's power and God's covenant with His chosen nation. It was a holy thing. But now, in the days of the judges, without good teaching, the ark had become just a good luck charm. It was a way, we thought, to, to get God on our side. In a sense, they're going to try to force God to fight for them, the thinking is, well, surely God will not allow the Ark of the Covenant to see defeat. One preacher calls this rabbit's, rabbit's foot religion. Treating holy things as if they were nothing but good luck charms. And you see, the initial question of the elders of Israel is the right question. How could this happen? How did this, this defeat come upon us? But the answer was... We need to go back to God in repentance. We need to turn back to God in prayer and return to proper reverence and worship. That is the answer that should have been given. We need to change course and return to the things that we once knew. Give God glory and honor. But they don't have good priests who will teach them and give them good advice. Instead, the priests themselves join in the rabbit's foot religion. And with this superstitious approach, they bring the Ark of the Covenant to the field of battle once again. And here's what happens. Go down to verse 10 of chapter 4 of Samuel. So the Philistines fought the, and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of the Covenant was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. It is a cataclysmic defeat. 30,000 foot soldiers killed. The remaining in full panic retreat. The wicked priests, just as God's prophecy said, are killed. And the ark, the symbol of God's love and care for His people, is captured. 
Meanwhile, Eli, who is by now 99 years old, is waiting by the side of the road, wondering how the battle is going. And a runner comes back from the battle with information. And he gives him the terrible news, starting in verse 16. It says this, Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines. The army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. The ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off of his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. What a cataclysmic series of events. Each of these blows comes down like the hammer of God's judgment. 4,000 dead, 30,000 dead, Eli's sons dead, Eli dead. The ark captured, and if we were to read on in chapter 4, we would read that Phinehas, one of Eli's sons, his wife was giving birth that very day, and she dies in childbirth. And before she dies in childbirth, having heard that the ark of God is captured, in her last breath she names her son Ichabod, which means no glory. The glory of God has departed. God's judgment has fallen on the nation. Now we need to remember that in these days, every war was a holy war because all wars were perceived as contests between the gods of one people group and the god of another people group. And that's exactly what the mindset is in these battles. And the Philistines consider their God to be victorious. And they consider the Ark of the, of the Covenant to be the spoils of war. And since it was associated with, e, uh, with Israel's God, who is now considered by them to be a discredited and defeated God, they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of their God, Dagon. Now, in pagan mythology, Dagon was considered to be the brother of El, which was the supreme god in their pagan hierarchy, and the father of Baal that we read so much about uh, throughout the scriptures. But as they place the ark in Dagon's temple, curious things begin to happen. Chapter 5 tells us that they would wake up in the morning and go into Dagon's temple, and they would find the statue of Dagon face down in front of the ark. And it happened repeatedly. And finally, one morning they find him not only face down in front of the ark, but his head and his hands in the statue are broken off as he lay before the ark. Chapter 5, verse 4 says this, The following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had broken off, lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon or any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The author of Samuel seeks to explain some of the the, uh, customs that they have heard about or seen among the Philistine people. They they hop over the threshold because of memory of, of this day. But it's not just that Dagon's statue is falling over in front of the ark. People in Ashdod are starting to get sick. They are developing tumors visible on the skin. And the the implication is also there's an infestation of rats that happens. And soon the city leaders are associating these events with the ark. 
And they want no, no part of the ark being there anymore. And so they remove the ark from Ashdod to another Philistine city called Gath. But there too, after a while, disease starts to infect the people. Skin tumors begin to appear. Rat infestations begin to happen. And so they try to send the ark away from the city of Gath to Ekron, another Philistine city, this one very close to the border of Israel. But by now, the story, story is getting out. Nobody wants any part of this ark. In chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. And what was once a symbol of their victory has become a source of fear. But some people among them, those who are maybe more of a scientific mindset, are not so convinced that these diseases and this rat infestation was related to the ark. Some among them understood that correlation does not prove causation, right? Scientific ones among them. Correlation does not prove causation. If I wash my car and it rains the next day, it's a correlated event. But it's not, I didn't cause the rain because I washed my car. And so some of the scientific thinking among them, they're saying, well, maybe this is just a coincidence. Maybe this isn't anything spiritual at all. And so they hatch a plan. And the plan is, we'll put the ark of God on a cart. And in the cart, we'll put some sacrifices to the God of Israel. Um, uh, some golden images of the tumors, some golden images of the rats that they fashion out of gold. We'll put that in the ark just in case. And then we'll send the ark down the road and we'll see which way the ark heads. If the cows who are pulling the ark uh, and, and the cart down the road head into Israelite territory, we will know, and, and into this nearby city of Beth Shemesh, it, we will know that this indeed is from God, these uh, terrible events. But if they don't go into Israelite territory, well, we'll figure that all of this was just bad luck and nothing more. And so that's just what they do in chapter 6, verse 11. Turn there, it says this. They place the ark of God, uh, the ark of the Lord on a cart, along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. And then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on, on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. And the people of Beth Shemesh rejoice. The ark of the Lord is back inside the nation of Israel. They make a sacrifice to God. Things are looking up. But once again, we see how the lack of good instruction is devastating. Because they don't understand the need for, the, for reverence for the ark of the Lord. And in what we might think as innocent curiosity, they violate God's command regarding the ark. In 1 Samuel 6, verse 19, it says, But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. You see, the people didn't have good teaching. Their natural curiosity caused them to do something that if they had good priests and, and good teaching from the Word, they would know never to do, never look inside the ark. Back in Numbers Moses is given instructions on how to move the ark and who should move the ark. 
And, they, and he's asked to assign a clan of the a Levite, Levite tribe, the Kohathites. And there they, he receives the warning that the Kohathites, as they move the ark, need to be careful. Numbers 4, verse 20 says, But the Kohathites must not go in to look at the holy things, even for a moment, or they will die. But the people in these days, the days of the judges, didn't remember those teachings. They were not prepared to encounter the holy things of God. They had not been instructed well about the will and the way of God. And so in their enthusiasm, they, they violate the standards of God and 70 men evidently take turns looking into the ark and they all die. And in that moment, the people of Beth Shemesh have exactly the same reaction that the Philistines had towards the ark. They're saying, get this out of here. We don't want anything to do with this because we don't know how to handle it. And say that, so they turn the ark over to, peop, to the people of a city called Kiriath-Jearim, who are evidently more able to deal with the ark in their midst. Interesting point. Kiriath-Jearim is a Gibeonite city. It's not an Israelite city initially. The Gibeonites, if you remember, tricked Joshua when, they, when the children of Israel were invading the land of Canaan and it was, it, it was obvious that they were going to be victorious. The Gibeonites came to Joshua pretending that they came from a far-off land. And they said, we live so far away and we're so sure that, that you're actually going to be victorious that we'd like to make a treaty with you so there will be peace and, and, and we don't have to worry about you killing us. And Joshua was tricked by that. He made the peace treaty with the Gibeonites and then found out they lived just down the road. And ever since then, the Gibeonites have been amongst the, the, the Israelites. And this was a, a Gibeonite town. By now, there was a mixed population. And this mixed population of kind of a, a neutral city was better able to handle the, um, the Ark of the Covenant in their midst than even the Israelite city of Beth Shemesh. In 1 Samuel 7, verse 2, it says this. It was, it was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jearim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. Now here's something that might confuse us if we let it. Because we know that the ark was actually there more like a hundred years. Because the ark of the covenant doesn't leave Kiriath-Jearim until David is reigning. In his first year as the king over the entire nation, you'll remember he goes and gets the ark and brings it to his new capital, Jerusalem. And so the reference to 20 years here could be confusing. And there's two lines of thought as to why the author says the ark remained 20 years. One line of thought is the ark, he's making sure that we know that the ark stayed in Kiriath Jearim uh, uh, through Samuel's uh, reign because that's about the length that Samuel has left in his time in power. That could be what the author is intending to say, or it could be that he's intending to say it took, this, it took 20 years of the ark being in Kiriath-Jearim until the nation actually came to a point of national repentance and they, and they, uh, uh, and they repented in, in, a, in a ceremony that's recorded in chapter 7, verse 5. Either of those, of those uh, aspects, historians and Bible scholars are kind of 
divided between which one is being mentioned here. But we do know this. Following the events in, of this particular terrible situation, the nation does grow in its mourning and its repentance. They mourn the diminishment of the land. They mourn the absence of the ark from the tabernacle, the losses they have in battle. And slowly they begin to listen to the, to the voice of Samuel calling them back to repentance, calling them to cast away their, their pagan statues of gods and goddesses of the, of the Canaanite religion. It took time. But this defeat and this tragedy was a catalyst for national repentance, which culminates in a ceremony that takes place at Mitzpah, recorded in chapter 7, verse 5. Not everyone uh, engages in that repentance, but it's, so, it's such a strong movement that it does change the course uh, of the attitude of the people. But as we step away from this terrible tragedy, we need to ask the question, what do we learn? And what we learn, first of all, is this. What you don't know can hurt you. Ignorance can kill you. We dare not play with the things of God, be that the Ark of the Covenant in ancient Israel or the holy concepts of mercy and grace and freedom that God gives us today. If we fail to take in the proper teaching that He shows us in His Word, and if we falter regarding Bible study, worship, and prayer, there will come a time when even as the people of God, we don't know what God requires of us. And that is a very dangerous place to be. Number two, we learn that we dare not think that God is some sort of cosmic good luck charm to ensure that we get what we want when we want it. We learn that biblical faith is not human-centered. It's God-centered. We worship Him and serve Him. It's not the other way around. And thirdly, we learn that God will defend His glory. You must not try to tame Him or defame Him. We learn that He is dangerous even though He is love. I think of that scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, where, where Lucy is introduced to Aslan the lion, that ferocious-looking lion that represents the one true God throughout that series. And, in, in, and she sees him and she says in her fear, is he safe? And the response is, safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And that good God, what was he thinking and feeling all throughout these events, this tragedy? Well, I think the prophet Ezekiel shows us the heart of God. Even when things are going wrong for his people, Ezekiel 33:11 says this, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? That's always God's heart. And it's His heart to us. Turn. Turn to Christ. Pursue truth. Learn from the Word. And what you will find is life that is truly life, abundant life. And that's the life that Jesus wants to give us. Turn to Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we learn from good examples and bad examples that you give us in your word. And we pray, Father, that we would be those who turn to you in reverence, turn to you in worship, 
turn to you in praise and thanksgiving and recognize that you care to be glorified in the world. Bless us, we pray. Keep us close to your heart and enable us to be those people who give you glory. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.